Welcome back to our fifth episode of 2021 of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. And if you're listening and your New Year's resolution was to wait until season three was completely over before you just binged us all in one day, <laughs> you've already broken your resolution, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Education Manager. And I'm Mike Orton, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. Well, uh, some of you may remember a very long time ago in a conference room far away in the Kansas <laughs> City Crossroads District, we began this podcast with absolutely no idea what we were doing in the podcast universe. It's possible we still don't know what we're doing, but <laughs> while uh, we still not, may not know much, we only recorded one episode in person. And after that first episode, we started recording remotely, each from our own homes, and uh, we knew immediately that we wanted to feature guests from here in KC and across the country, but we really weren't sure how to do that. Yeah, so if you've been listening for a while, you you know that we've pretty much mastered the special guest thing by now, and that's thanks to our illustrious audio engineer, Tim Dixon. But but way back in episode two, when we hadn't figured out how, how to add a fourth person to this mix, uh, we did a pre-interview, if you remember, with... Uh, composer Adam Schoenberg, and and basically we sent him some questions in an email, and then he uh, wrote back his answers, and then we read those answers in episode two of season one of this podcast. And you know, I mean, it it, it was awesome to hear from him and to you know communicate and exchange emails back and forth. But um, I I've really been itching to chat with Adam in person ever since that email exchange, and I am super excited that that is happening today. That is right, Stephanie. The wait is over. We are super excited to have with us today Emmy Award-winning and Grammy Award-nominated composer Adam Schoenberg. Welcome to the show, Adam. We're so glad to have you. Thanks so much for inviting me to join you all today. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Adam. So we've got a lot to catch up on, but uh, I'll start with a follow-up to one of the questions we asked you way back in March. Uh, and at that time, we asked what you'd been working on, and you told us about a concerto for orchestra and a film score you had in the works. Uh, can you tell, tell us how those projects are going and uh, what else you might have... <laughs> cooking in the last nine months? Yeah, it's funny. Thanks to COVID and our lovely pandemic, uh, both things have been delayed. Oh, no. Yeah, the, I was working on the film score, and uh, they realized that a few additional scenes had to be reshot in the Philippines, but they couldn't. They still haven't been able to go back to the Philippines to uh, reshoot those scenes. So that film is on hold. And then the concerto for orchestra that I'm writing for the Atlanta Symphony, which I'd begun... Uh, now is pushed back to the 23-24 season mm. thanks to COVID oh, and wow. also because Robert Spano, this was supposed to be his farewell gift with his final season as music director, uh, but because he didn't get to have his final season, his technical final season will be 21-22 uh, while they conclude their search and then their new music director will be inaugurated during the 22-23 season and then Robert will come back as, you know, the illustrious guest uh, during the 23-24 season, and that's when they'll do the concerto for orchestra. So both those projects are essentially on hold. I am now uh, working on a cello concerto uh, about artificial intelligence and automation. Ooh, cool. And I'm also using this time 
uh, really actually just because of the pandemic and also it's been a dream of mine for a very long time to dive more into the world of film and TV. And so I am working on what is known as making demos in multiple genres so that when your agent calls you and gives you a 24 hour notice for a possible submission, I can go into my library and not fully panic because you don't have any time to make a solid demo. So I'm, uh, you know, getting my ducks in a row now to be prepared. Well, that all sounds awesome. I'm curious with the, with your concerto for orchestra for Atlanta, since it's pushed back to 23, 24, do you just stop working on it and decide you'll pick it up later? Or is it something that you'll continue to work on kind of throughout or, you know, how, how does that work? Yeah. So basically with, with all commissions and, and, you know, lining them up with the orchestra's calendar, you know, things get pushed out. And so if if I were responsible, I would <laughs> just try to finish it right now because obviously another commission will land and I don't want to get, get too overloaded, but also just my headspace. I mean, it's so funny. I, I, I'm generally an optimistic person and and this whole pandemic really hit me in in somewhat of a negative way where i just was not feeling as inspired and also frankly just with our, our both of our boys being home my wife and i scrambling to run zoom school with them mm. and our our youngest entering kindergarten our second and second grade it was just hard to stay focused. Plus, I'm also a full-time professor, and I had my teaching responsibilities with my with Occidental College and my students there. And so, in many ways, it's probably a blessing that the piece is put on hold. But mentally, I to answer your question, yes, I'll I'll slowly start to get back into it so that I don't push it back two years. Sure. Um, but I'm now focusing on this cello concerto. So, nice. so tell us more about this concerto. I'm really uh, interested in this. Yeah. Is, is it for a a particular orchestra, a particular soloist, both? Yeah, it's for Eve Damraj, who I went to Juilliard with. Um, he actually sort of had a video that went viral uh, with the George Floyd protests. He made a beautiful video of god what piece was it it's that famous uh dido's uh lament um and he called it i can't breathe and it's it's quite beautiful and sort of this profound experience so i hope you can check that out and the concertos for teddy abrams and the louisville orchestra oh and jason's excited nice. so my and, m- most recent position was with the louisville orchestra and teddy i love love that orchestra and i love teddy oh good yeah teddy's great and he, he felt like the right fit because he's very much into technology and this piece is it's called automation and and the premise is essentially you know, man versus machine and just the world that we live in with artificial intelligence and automation, how, you know, people aren't needed, right? You can go into target today and not have any interaction with a person and check out using a machine. And so the concept is, is about the, the cellist being live on stage, but essentially being engulfed and consumed by, uh, the automated cellist or the computer cellist. So it's essentially going to be a double cello concerto. So, so it's, it's a pre-recorded cello part, with a live cellist on stage playing. And we had a huge dream that was going to have um, projection mapping and also electronics and amplification, but that's so expensive, Um, including hologram technology where the computer, the machine could almost walk out on stage and sort of like take over Eve's body. But that's just probably not going to happen. Although we we will still dream big as it it evolves. Um, But the other element with the concerto that I'm super excited about is it uses this relatively new instrument called the Haldora phone, hmm. uh, which was made by this Icelandic instrument builder. 
and uh, the instrument was f- first came to attention uh, with, through the scores of Chernobyl and the Joker. Um, and I can hmm. never pronounce her last name. I don't even want to try to pronounce Hilder's last name, but <laughs> right, right. I, I'm such a fan of her voice and her music. Mm. And she's also a fantastic cellist. But the Haldorophone is essentially, it looks sort of like a cello, but it has feedback and amplification. And so you can, um, almost like modular synthesis, where you can synthesize the sounds and sort of transform them into infinite possibilities. And and the essence of the instrument is that it really can't be fully controlled. It's almost an aleatoric type of instrument. So it, it goes well with, with automation in the sense that it can have its own mind and eventually mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. over. And so Eve will also use that instrument on stage. But Occidental College helped commission it. We're the first um, institution, really the first organization in the United States to, that will own this instrument and then and then it'll be also be used for the very first time in the world in an orchestral context played oh, you know, so in cool. the orchestra so cool i'm excited about that as well and then of course every subsequent orchestra that plays it will have to rent this instrument from occidental <laughs> college so you know there's a little there's a little something something on the back end of it <laughs> smart business P- possibly although really it's it's part of the arrangement with oxy is that eve will be able to take the instrument on tour and, and eve is going to have exclusive rights with the concerto for i forget what the contract was you know two or three years anyway and at that point yes if another cellist wants to take it on they would have to somehow work it out with with the institution to borrow it but the great thing about this cello is that you can actually check it in the cargo on an airplane and it will not break ah (laughs) that is very good that is very good well this sounds like a fascinating piece and a fascinating project and I'm going to drive back to Louisville when it gets premiered because uh, it would be great to see all my friends there again and hear this amazing piece. I can't wait to hear it. That's so exciting. Well, I hope you can join us. Yeah. Adam, tell me, I'm fascinated also by the fact that you said that you want to break into the world of, of writing for television and film. I think some of the world's best composers are in that arena right now, and they have been for a while. Um I, we just finished listening and watching The Mandalorian season two. I don't know if you've all seen it or not, but oh, you yeah. know, Ludwig's, Ludwig's music in that is incredible, especially the the final episode. I was just blown away. What is it, what is it that interests you in writing for that medium? And what ideas do you have? I mean, obviously you're incorporating this new idea, new instrument with live orchestra. Do you have thoughts? I mean, his approach, of course, was using heavy metal and using a bass recorder and all sorts of interesting things, bridging gaps between the orchestra world on stage and what you can do with a, a fi- in a film as well to represent the action on screen. Just talk to us a little bit about your uh, inspiration for wanting to break into this world. Sure. Yeah, and, and Ludwig's score to Mandalorian, especially that final episode and those ending credits. Oh, the, man. The, yes. the very classically orchestral sort of developed uh, ending theme was quite unusual and fascinating and unusual yeah. in the best possible way, like totally unexpected that he would go that route. He's he's incredibly gifted and, and can you know, he's also a master producer, clearly, with Childish Gambino and... He's, mm-hmm. you know, pretty pretty impressive to do many different types of uh, musical expression. Yeah. F- uh, for me, really, it all began when, during my 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 time at Oberlin College. My sophomore year at Oberlin, one of the two most historical music scores of of my lifetime came out that same year. The first one being John Carilliano's Red Violin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the second being Thomas Newman's American Beauty. Um. And both were up for Oscars. I don't know how you could decide because to me, they 
both were of equal merit and and John ended up winning. And then of course I went to Juilliard and was able to do my doctorate with him and learn from the master himself, which was which was a gift. But in particular, Thomas Newman's uh, American Beauty and his language just changed my life. I mean, he's such an extraordinary composer in the sense of creating emotional ambiguity, which is very important for film scoring in the sense that you don't necessarily want to manipulate or dictate the audience in terms of how they're going to feel, unless, of course, the director is going to ask you to manipulate the audience because music can be powerfully manipulative. Um, <laughs> the the just the the language in Thomas Newman's music, there's a lot of references to Satie and even Messiaen and, and Messiaen's quartet for the end of time, that fifth movement, the cello piano movement, which has a bunch of 10th chords are truly my favorite type of chords, which you'll hear in a lot of my music. And so um, I've always just been drawn to film music and how it can serve its its role within the film. I also like to collaborate with people. I think film, you know, film is obviously the extension of opera. It's it's the greatest synthesis of all of the arts coming together from choreography to dialogue to costume design to effects, you name it. And and to be part of that experience is quite magical. And and frankly, after you know, I graduated from Juilliard in 2010 and I've been so fortunate to have had orchestral commissions during that entire time. Mm. But being an orchestral composer, you you know, as you see my studio, I, I work by myself all the time. And after doing that for 10 years, and also just because of our, our, our living situation, for a while I had to essentially take on every commission that came my way just to help support the family. Mm-hmm. And and then and that also just becomes challenging itself because, you know, people on the outside think, oh, it's so you're it's so cool that you're a composer and you're this artist and what is it like to just write music? And on one hand, it's it's an incredible blessing and I feel very lucky to have the, these opportunities. Uh, but it's also your livelihood and a job and 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 you have to make a living and have to take on X number of pieces, then it becomes exhausting at times. Mm-hmm. And and so I get lonely. And so the idea of, of, of working with a director, working with a producer, also creating different types of music. I've never really done a lot of in the box electronic stuff, but I'm always been interested in navigating in that area. To me, it's just, it opens up your entire world. And also my wife's a TV writer. So just, we're in the industry and I mean, obviously I've done some, some work, um, but I want to do more of it. My dream since my sophomore year in college has been to score one film a year and write one orchestral piece a year. And I say that all the time. It has never happened. It may never happen because it's now been 20 years, uh, (laughs) but I feel like we're getting closer. You know, we had a a conversation, um, a few episodes back with uh, Nico Muley. And uh, I think I asked him the question, you know, what percentage of your work is commissioned versus, you know, just just stuff that you want to work on for you. And he was like, oh, 100% is commission. And I think that's something that, you know, when you talk about it being your livelihood and, you know, it is your job. It's what you, you know, how you make a living. And I think that's probably something that a lot of people don't consider too, is the commission work, while I'm sure it's wonderful and fulfilling, um, you know, it's it's not like you're just sitting there getting to write exactly what you want to write, what's in your head all the time. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, yes and no. I, I agree. The, the, the fascinating thing about commissions and the difference between scoring a film and writing a piece for orchestra are the parameters. Because mm-hmm. when, you know, the Kansas City Symphony back in the day said, we want you to write a 21st century pictures at an exhibition. And we want you to base the, the work on the from the Nelson Atkins Museum. And it should be, you know, 
up to 30 minutes, but not really anything beyond that. That was it. Right. So from a composer's point of view or perspective, that's a dream and that you really do have complete artistic control and freedom within the context of of the the orchestral medium and the number of players that you have and the doublings. So you I do feel like I can express myself and be myself. But where you're 100 percent right is that I don't write music. It's not like I'm just sitting down and writing a piece for myself ever. Right. Everything is 100% 100% commission-based. The only time it hasn't been lately is when I'm making these film demos right now, but I'm also trying to make a demo within a specific style. And then, of course, with film composing, you're completely at service to the image, to the directors, and to the producers. And if they don't like something, even if you do, you have to change it. And so, whereas a commission for an orchestra, I'm sure the conductor or, or Mike Mike G's like, oh, God, Adam, what did you write? He's, <laughs> whether he comes up to me and says something is another conversation, but I get to write it. So then to follow up with that, um, you know, like if you're commissioned like you were in Kansas City and you're given very kind of loose parameters, like this instrumentation, this approximate duration, and, you know, this subject matter from the Nelson Atkins, how much of the time are you given kind of freedom like that versus like, are you ever given like substantially more specific ideas or restrictions or are most commissions like that? Most commissions are like that. I mean, very few have been so specific. Once I I was commissioned to write a fanfare for the Atlanta Symphony, and that was a fanfare, a celebratory work. So it had to be a specific style, a specific tempo. But again, I could write anything within, you know, that I wanted to write within that sort of um, prescribed description. And then I I uh, was once commissioned by a, a, a family of patrons and for their father's 90th birthday, and that had a specific theme. And so that was a, a little different. And I'm trying to think, what else? A, a children's ballet, that was a specific theme. Otherwise, it's usually just duration and instrumentation, and, and I can sort of do what I want, which is cool. honestly an incredible gift. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious because we have talked to several uh, composers over the course of uh, this podcast, but but I don't know if we've spoken to one who has um, who's been as active in film and TV as you have. And one of the things that I'm always curious about uh, when I'm thinking about film or TV music is, you know, at what point did the composer get to see the thing? that they're writing for. You know, I assume that the director tells you, oh, we're making a show about Muppets in space that are embezzling money from Northern Arkansas and (laughs) go, you know. (laughs) Wow, what a plot. Yeah, no, it's basically like somebody put Netflix in a blender. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, how does that process work? Is the thing, you know, can you basically go and watch it before you start writing? Do you just have very general concepts? I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with that because there's so much music where when you see it on screen, you say, aha, that's the perfect music for this show. And, and I never quite understand, you know, how in the process that all comes together. Right. Okay. Well, first, Nico's definitely had more film composing opportunities. Um, he's, he's really had a, a pretty marvelous career of of doing lots of different types of collaborative projects. But yes, so basically there's different stages and depending on the type of project you're working on. For instance, the documentary that I scored on Frank Lloyd Wright that that won the Emmy, I got to see rough footage as they were putting it together. And and then there's a lot of dialogue where we would talk about uh, where is music going to go, which is essentially called a spotting session. So the director, the editor, and two producers came over to my studio and uh, we watched the rough cut and sort of 
determine when music would happen. But of course, once the picture's locked, a lot of that rough cut material is gone, and then you sort of have to spot it again and have that dialogue. Um, but but you know, other times you can get a project and they can give you the script ahead of time, and the director actually may want you to generate themes and music ahead of time that may inspire the actors or may inspire just the world that they're going to be shooting and may help with the tone and the color that they're going to go after. So it really... It really just depends on who you're working with, what type of project it is, and the timing of it all. Uh, I will say that, generally speaking, the the process of film scoring happens in what's called post-production, after they've shot the film, after they've edited it, and now they're getting ready to put dialogue, FX, and sound together. And that's why there's the cliche cliche saying that you've run out of time before you've even begun because some of the greatest film scores have been composed literally in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's just how it how it is, which is insane. And TV is also probably even more intense because, uh, you know, in TV to me, we're in the golden age of TV. T- TV to me is the greatest place to be writing music right now, especially if you have a, a nice series where you can develop the music over the course of, of seasons or episodes. So it's like a longer film score. But if you're on a 22-episode show, then you're probably writing 40 minutes of music every single week, which is yeah. really almost, you know, almost impossible. So, so the biggest film composers have teams of people with them uh, because it's almost humanly impossible to do multiple shows at once. And the biggest names have three, four, five shows going on simultaneously. And, and I don't ever see myself going in that route. Um, I think the idea of just doing one show, which would also be incredibly stressful as it is, would, would be enough. Because at the end of the day, I also don't want to abandon the orchestral world because I still love that. I just want to find a happy medium. And I also love being a professor. So it's, you know, juggling those worlds, it's it's complicated. Do you have um, any favorite TV show scores? Where's your favorite music on TV right now? I mean, they're everywhere. I love the music to Ozark. It's, uh-huh. it's uh, very different. I, I did like The Mandalorian. I loved all four seasons of The Crown, which actually had mm-hmm. Um, a few different composers on it. Martin Phipps for seasons three and four, uh, I thought were spectacular, but mm-hmm. but even seasons one and two were also superb. Uh, Netflix, The Punisher, I thought had had good music. I mean, all, all sorts of different. Uh, Lovecraft Country, Laura Cartman scored a Lovecraft Country on HBO, oh, I, I think is really excellent and, and quite orchestral. Um, Thomas Newman's music, of course, his themes to the newsroom, to Six Feet Under have really been wonderful i mean there's there's honestly such great music on tv right now i I think it's amazing you know some of the shows you mentioned you know we sort of remember the the earworm the theme that you know maybe runs over the credits or something like that but there is actually continuous music in a whole lot of them or you know fairly continuous music over the course of an episode and it's just amazing i find you know in film certainly and i become aware of it when we play films as an orchestra, just how much music there is. But uh, the same is becoming true for for TV shows, I think, now that they're just so, so beautifully produced. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, having two kids, you know, How to Train Your Dragon oh, by yeah. John yes. Powell. Though that, that, that music is amazing. It is. Yes. I have the score to it. It's it's I mean, this person. John, the, you have to look at the music and the score. It's it's sort of life changing. The themes are beyond memorable. And, and amazing. I'll also say, uh, I love the music to Succession. I think Nicholas Bertel is a really talented composer. Mm-hmm. And, and that music is also really good. 
Hmm. But Hilder for Chernobyl. I mean, she won an Emmy for Chernobyl, an Oscar for The Joker. That that music is also just phenomenal. And, you know, I mean, a lot of the Pixar films as well with Michael Giacchino or Thomas Newman or Randy Newman writing. It's just so much, so much great music in film and TV. I totally agree. So let's, let's back up and talk a little bit about um, one of your projects here with the Kansas City Symphony, which was recording several of your pieces, your American Symphony, Finding Rothko, and the piece that we were talking about a little bit earlier, Picture Studies. Tell us what, what I, and I know that that's not your only um, recording session, obviously, with an orchestra and, and with chamber groups, etc. What is the recording session like for you as a composer, if you do have the privilege of being able to be there and be part of the process and, and talk a little bit about how nerve-wracking that is and how quick that process moves, because that's obviously another fast-moving process. And you want to make sure your music, which is going to be out there permanently now in this way, is captured the way you want it to to come across to the listener. Yeah, totally. So actually, with the Kansas City Symphony, that is my only orchestral album to date. We were supposed to do a recording project with the Nashville Symphony this season where they were going to do my violin concerto with Anna Kiko Myers and another mm. piece, but I don't know what the status of that is. Uh, I do have some chamber music and those recording projects. Um, although for the chamber music projects, I have not been, I was not invited. Uh, they, you know, they, they recorded elsewhere and then of course sent me takes and we talk. But in terms of the experience with Kansas City Symphony, I mean, it's a really unique experience and, and it, it, it depends on how political we also want to get in the conversation <laughs> just because, you know, you're dealing with a union and I still, there was just some funny moments that happened. I mean, I mean, first of all, I will forever be grateful to the organization, to Michael Stern and to Frank Byrne for for championing the music and for wanting to put the project together because it wouldn't have happened without them. And to to record in in the new hall at the time was just also really a, a beautiful experience. Um, but it's high stakes because it's expensive. And then with the union, you you have, in my opinion, these ridiculous rules in terms of you get to record for 40 minutes or whatever it was, and you have to take this break. And I, I so vividly remember we were finishing, I think it was Finding Rothko. We had like three measures left. And the stage manager came out and goes in the middle of it because the timing was done and they just, they had to stop in the middle of the recording just because of the union. They didn't want to pay people overtime. And then I also remember some orchestral players, now I'm being very political, um, you know, just being like, okay, we need a break. We're getting up. But then they'd go listen to their take and they didn't like how they sounded. And they asked Michael or some, oh, can we do this again? You know? And so it's just sort of funny how, how that had to occur. And people even had to vote, I think, to do an overtime to finish something mm -hmm. because we were running out of time. So it was quite stressful just to get it done. But it's also invigorating and, you know, I mean, I'm still grateful for the experience. And, you know, and again, every recording company you work with is different, right? Yeah. Reference recordings is very nuanced and particular and has their philosophy in terms of how they want to record, which is very holistic and appreciative in the sense that let the orchestra speak for itself and the orchestra's natural sound is what we want. But for me, as a, as the composer that I am and sort of the control freak that I am, I wanted everyone to be miked and I wanted to be able to have control over the mix. Um, because to me, I, I want that, that ability. Um, but again, you, you count your, you know, your, you count your blessings and you're thankful for what it was. And at the end of the day, it really was, a, a great experience to just be there. Also, you know, for 
I mean, Mike G obviously knows the Kansas City Symphony really I'm not from Kansas City, but it was my hometown orchestra in the sense that this is the one orchestra that really helped me grow as a composer mm -hmm. and was there for me from day one when I didn't know what I was doing and was there for me as I was trying to figure things out and was there for me when I had questions. I remember calling many people in the orchestra, um, whether it's Christine Grossman at the time or um, Susie Yang or some of the percussionists who are now have now moved on from the orchestra or uh, Raymond, uh, who was a clarinetist or, or Boris who left, but you know, being a clarinetist, but I could call these people and say, this is what I'm trying to work on. Does this make sense? Is there a better way for me to do this? How, you know, help me out. So there was that cordial and collegial um, type of environment, which was great that I don't think I would have had with another orchestra that didn't really know me. Um, but you know, you're also just dealing with very strict time management that frankly was frustrating. One of the things that I think you know is important for everyone to understand who maybe hasn't been in an orchestra recording session before, you know, we do this, uh, we do these studio recording sessions over a couple of days, and it's really like a, a whole day that we spend in like two, three hour sessions a day, essentially. And for the, the tenor of that entire three hour session is kind of like the last two minutes of the Super Bowl. <laughs> Every minute good, of it is comparison. like the last two minutes of the Super Bowl, because as Adam said, and he's exactly right. I mean, it, you know, there are reasons for all of this, which are not worth getting into. And, and the philosophy behind it is not worth getting into. But the point is that there are very strict rules about, you know, exactly how many minutes we can record at a time before we have to take X number of break. And in a session, there's, you know, X number of minutes of break and we can break it up somewhat however we want. And we need time to review stuff that we've recorded. So there's a lot of strategery to how we manage the clock in this in this period. And it's it's really crazy. We'll be sitting there and, you know, Michael always has a little intercom phone uh, to the control room and we'll get done with the take and ring, ring. And he picks up the phone and he's like, do we have it? Do we have it? We need measure to it. And he looks at the clock. And he's like, we need, do we need to check it? Do we have it or not? Four minute and 27 second break now. And then he runs <laughs> in the control room. <laughs> And he checks, we need this, we need that, do you need the other? He's the producers, and Adam's back there, and he comes back. See, it's really, it's really, really crazy. And uh, fortunately, as the flute player, none of that is my problem. <laughs> I just sit there and play the flute, and I don't stress about all those things. But I can't even imagine how stressful uh, all of that would be. But I, I also want to say, one of the things that, that makes that particular recording experience most special for me is the fact that we recorded music uh, that was new music that, you know, probably most people have not yet heard. And also we were recording it for the first time, you know, and we've made uh, plenty of wonderful recordings. Uh, but to my recollection, that's the only disc that we've made that was new music that we were recording for the first time. And we had this incredible collaboration with Adam and, you know, we made something that was very much, you know, a, a collaborative vision, I hope of, of his work, of our performance, of, you know, the recording engineers, you know, all of it came together to make a truly new thing. And, um, and that was very, very exciting for me. And I love that. And I can remember having, you know, conversations backstage or whenever about, you know, this moment or that moment or what I could try differently or whatever, you know, that's maybe my favorite part of making music, whether we're recording or, or playing a new piece just for a concert. So I, I loved that experience. But um, I, I want to ask you before we wrap up as well, you know, you've mentioned a few times uh, your passion for teaching at Occidental, which is terrific. And I think a lot of us have been dealing with either our kids experiencing school over Zoom, or if we're teaching ourselves, I know I'm doing a lot of Zoom teaching. What 
What is that like for a composer? And how is it different from from your normal teaching experience? And how has it created new challenges and maybe new opportunities too? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we have to make the best the best of it because we're all in it together. And in terms of teaching private lessons, comp, you know, composition lessons, that was the easiest thing because I've been teaching private lessons over Skype for over a decade. And Zoom, frankly, is a million times better because they can share the screen, share the audio. In fact, I can take control of the person's computer if they're on finale, literally, you know, take control of their screen, and then I can make adjustments. So so one-on-one, no big deal and works well. But I teach uh, an introduction to film scoring class and and th- this past fall, and that was quite challenging for a number of reasons. The, the biggest reason just being the inequities that become apparent and visible among the students, right? I mean, what's great about being at a college is that kids from all different backgrounds come together, but when they're on campus, you're more or less the same, right? You could be live, you could come from San Francisco and come from a very wealthy family and have an entire bedroom to yourself or even an entire floor to yourself. Uh, but then you could come from, you know, a small apartment in Queens where you're sharing a bedroom with your four siblings. But when you're on campus, you both have a dorm room and you both have access to the music lab and you've access to the same type of sound libraries. Mm. So basically, I had to sort of set up the environment to make it as equitable as possible because not everyone had the same type of computer or the same type of headphones or the same type of gear. And the college was really great about shipping keyboards and headphones and even laptops to students who didn't have that, uh, but we couldn't like get light multiple licenses to have the thousands of dollars worth of sample libraries that we have in our music studios. So so the, so the inequities is, is what was really hard, but then just to keep people engaged is also challenging through a screen and looking at little boxes, I think is oftentimes um, difficult, but your expectations have to change somewhat and you have to be more accommodating. And also everyone's mental health was just at an mm-hmm. all-time low. And then, of course, there's Zoom fatigue when you're staring at a screen for eight hours or even me lecturing. If I have to lecture for an hour and a half, I'm so focused. And when I'm done, like I teach on Tuesdays and Thursdays, it is very hard for me to compose at the end of that day. My mind is fried. And even looking at a screen is challenging. But, you know, we've learned a lot with technology. I'm curious to see, what I'm really curious to know is what's going to remain present once we go back to being in person. And, and just like this, you know, all the podcasts and, and Zooming and the interviews, everything, you know, there, there's, there's some really great takeaways. I also love that orchestras like San Francisco Symphony with their Throughline concert, oh, actually with Nico, you know, they made an amazing recording, almost a commercial, probably was it is a commercial recording. It sounded excellent. And that's a great way to make music because again, even going back to our recording session and, you know, I, I also want to stress it really was a, a, a remarkable experience to have my music recorded by the Kansas City Symphony. It was just unbelievably stressful. <laughs> and 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 in the same respect how I opened my conversation talking about writing writing music is my job, as an orchestral player sitting down at your chair in front of your stand, that's your job. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about the art and the beauty of let's just make music and like obviously I'm aware that people need to take breaks and rest their lips and their muscles. Um, but it just got frustrating at times when you're in the middle of the moment of the music and it wasn't about the music. It was about just the union and the break. And this also goes back to automation. You know, it's funny because we, we, we live in such a digital era now, right? So there's something so rewarding 
to go sit in orchestral hall and hear people make music live and have it just resonate out and hit you in the face that way. But because we're also so used to listening on headphones, being in an orchestra in, in, in a hall, unless you know it's at the end of a you know Bruckner symphony or something epic, it never quite re- reaches that mass volume that I like to hear. And so that's why I like recordings. And so the idea of what of what San Francisco did with Throughline, the or basically the idea of presenting premieres digitally is something I'm really interested in. Sure. To just you know really record it and mix it exactly how you imagine it would be just a wonderful thing if that starts to happen more. I would love to see a combination of yes, let's buy tickets and go to the hall. But hey, the Kansas City Symphony is sending this to all its subscribers. We just recorded this brand new piece by this composer, and here's our video of it, and it sounds like a rock concert, and it and it sounds you know fantastic. Absolutely. You mentioned Nico and Throughline again, and it, it reminds me because you also said something about you have to hurry up and finish because you know the project's already done. He. When we chatted with him, I was under the impression that he had had a ton of time to write uh, write that piece. I, wh- how long did he say it took him, guys? Like three weeks? Yeah, it was under something a month. Insane. Yeah, it was like a month. Something crazy. So I mean, you know, it's just it's one of those things. I think is so. It's why I love talking with, you know, all sorts of instrumentalists and composers because there's so much, you know, that even I, you know, who have lived in the orchestral world since I was, you know, twelve get to learn every day. And that's just, that's awesome. So Adam, one question we always ask, and we actually have asked you this question in writing before, but I'm going to ask it again. And in the chance that maybe our listeners have not listened to episode two, or maybe your answers are different. So we uh, always ask here on Beethoven walks into a bar, two questions. The first is, what is your beverage of choice? And that can be alcoholic, non-alcoholic, caffeinated, non-caffeinated. And then to follow that up, if you were enjoying a beverage and Beethoven pulled up a chair next to you, what would you like to chat with Beethoven about? Is there a question you would ask him? Yes. Uh, both things really haven't changed. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So I love a really nice uh, aged or Añejo tequila, neat not with ice, not with water, just straight as is, and to sip, not to shoot. Uh-huh. And uh, Patron has been good, Casamigos has been good, and as I mentioned before, Costco's Kirkland brand is quite excellent and certainly the, <laughs> the most cost-saving. Oh, Jason's showing us. He has, yeah, I, he has I, a I bottle. Bought, this is my second or third bottle of Kirkland's Añejo tequila because of Adam's answer back in March. Uh, it's delicious. Good recommendation. You should get a some kind of kickback from Costco. Probably. We, we've plugged <laughs> their products a few times on this show. We now. have. Actually, yeah. I Costco's, think they should become a sponsor. Uh, Kirkland Vodka is also delicious. Okay, so you're having some delicious Añejo with Mr. Beethoven, and what, are, what would you ask him? So I would say, dearest Ludwig, <laughs> what would be your dream project to compose if we could magically bring you back today and you were given complete and total freedom? As the majority of us composers exclusively work by way of commissions, the commissions themselves almost always have parameters such as the overall duration or, or the instrumentation or a potential theme. I'm always curious to know what composers would write if they were given the opportunity to compose any type of piece for any type of ensemble with any type of technological backing. So yeah. what would you write? Because I have a feeling it would be ridiculously spectacular. Yeah, of course it would. Indeed. 
Well, Adam, it's been so great talking with you today. I'm glad that we finally got to have a real conversation and not just have to read your answers to questions <laughs> on, on, on the episode like we did for that very second episode. But one other thing we'd like to close our program with each week, whenever we can, is some recommended listening. Uh, I love that entire album that the Kansas City Symphony made with you of your three pieces that I mentioned. Um, but I had the chance to conduct Pigeons in Flight from uh, Picture Studies on a classic song, Cork Tier, a couple years ago. Oh, nice. And I have to say, to tie kind of tie this whole thing together, I, I loved it from the very first time I heard it. I love that whole piece. I think that piece is brilliantly written. Um, but it, Pigeons in Flight specifically is one of two things I've heard in my life that I feel like I'm actually in the air flying. With that piece, I felt like I was with the pigeons. With the flying theme from E.T., I felt like I was in the air with Elliot and E.T. way back in mm. the day. And every time I hear that. So to kind of tie this all together, I think you, if you want to have a career completely in film music, you could do it based on that piece alone. So I'm going to recommend your entire album with us with the Kansas City Symphony, but especially uh, Picture Studies. Thank you. I didn't know you did Pigeons in Flight. That's good to hear. I'm glad I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks for programming it. Absolutely. So I'm actually going to recommend another of Adam's pieces and just a, a little story to go along with it. So um, I was invited kind of last minute to a, perf- a wind ensemble performance here in Kansas City a couple years ago. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go. Sure, I love wind ensemble music. And uh, we got there, and it was in Hellsberg Hall, and it was the University of Texas um, wind ensemble premiering Adam's piece, uh, your symphony number two, is it Migration? Is that what it's called? Yep. For wind ensemble, and it was the premiere of that piece. And Adam was there, and I think we ran into you at the restaurant, and we had a drink and beforehand, and, um, and then got to sit in and listen to the first time that it had been performed. And... I, I say I love wind ensemble music. I loved this piece. I love it so much. And so I'm sharing the um, the video of that performance in Hellsberg Hall with the UT uh, wind ensemble of Adam's Symphony Number no. 2. Nice. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I'm going to um, follow suit here and recommend some more music uh, from our friend Adam Schoenberg. And this... Um, this comes with a little story, too. Uh, he wrote this wonderful piece for flute and piano called One Acquainted with the Night, which is actually, you know, a relatively older work for you now. This is from 2007, a while ago. I think we played it. It was around It was maybe the same season you were in residence, and we did the recording with you, I think, but I can't quite recall. Anyway, I played it on one of our uh, happy hour chamber music mm-hmm. concerts. I mean, it's a beautiful piece. It's it's not that long, but it's just so you know evocative, and um, and the title is a reference to the Robert Frost poem of the same name, right? So I come out on stage, and I'm we always speak to the audience in those concerts, and I'm setting up the piece, and I haven't said the name of it yet. I'm just setting up how it refers to this Robert Frost poem, and I said something fascinating about it, and then I you know, I'm thinking and talking at the same time, and then I'm ready to, you know, say the name of the piece. I said, so I hope everyone will enjoy this wonderful piece by Adam Schoenberg. (laughs) What the hell is it called? Silence. (laughs) Literally hall full of people. And I'm like, I know it went, uh, Frost, what, what was I talking about? Literally, I just kind of paused and then people started to giggle and I felt really bad. And then it came to me and I was just like, oh, one acquainted with the night, of course. And uh, and then I went and played. So uh, I am going to recommend to all of our listeners this lovely piece 
by Adam Schoenberg, one acquainted with the night. Well done. What's it called again? One Acquainted with the Night, and I will never, okay. ever forget the title of it again, okay. no matter what. <laughs> I'm going to randomly quiz you in the middle of a rehearsal one day, you know, while we're working up Prokofiev for something, I'm going to say, what's the name of Adam's piece for flute and piano? You can do that. It's it's All absolutely right, beautiful. It's on SoundCloud. We'll share the link. Cool. Adam, do you have any uh, recommended listening for our listeners? It yeah, can be I, your I, work. It, it doesn't have to be, so don't feel pressured. Uh, all right, I feel like we've had enough of my music. Um, <laughs> so if you have not seen The Crown, first of all, it's a really special show, and and the music is, is quite important to it, and I would probably focus on season three, the, the soundtrack of season three by Martin Phipps. Uh, that music is really great. And then in terms of contemporary composers, I've been really drawn to this uh, British composer, Anna Meredith, she is a composer of both electronic and acoustic music, and she wrote this really gnarly track uh, called Nautilus, which is electronic, but also has this awesome tuba that enters oh, and, yeah. and like a drum set. And rhythmically, it's just really interesting because when the beat drops, you don't expect it to drop where it drops. But that piece also really influ influenced the opening of my percussion concerto called Losing Earth. Where, to the point where I, I was almost going to literally very much rip her off, and I felt like I can't do that, so I need to make it a little different. But I loved the drive and intensity of this track. And you have to be patient with it because it's dense and minimalist, and uh, I think it's about two and a half, three minutes in when the beat actually starts to drop. But it's just, it's, a, it's an explosive piece, and, and uh, I like it. Awesome. I I'll can't to wait to that check out. that out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Adams, thank you so much again for being with us. And we love being able to see you again. And we love the great relationship that the Kansas City Symphony has always had with you. We look forward to playing more of your music uh, in the future when we return to normal concerts with the full orchestra. And I wish you lots of luck as well on these upcoming projects and commissions you have with the Louisville Orchestra and the Atlanta Symphony and various others. Thank you so much for, for being here today and talking with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, this was Adam. fun. Great to see you. Well, guys, 2020 was a challenging year for the entire world. We were not only facing the largest pandemic in a century, but here in America, we were also continuing the fight towards true equality. And this is certainly true in the musical world, as it is in so many fields. For too long, many incredibly gifted composers have not had their powerful voices heard and represented enough in the vast canon of orchestral literature. On next week's episode, Mike, Steffi, and I will share with you our list of 10 composers of color whose music you should know. We hope that you will find their work as compelling, beautiful, and rich as we do. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>